Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, nerds. Welcome to a bonus episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam, and just wanted to give you a little midweek surprise. Uh, so yesterday at time of recording, I'm recording this on Tuesday, November 12th, uh, yesterday I was in uh, Georgia doing a little bit of an impromptu school visit because we were celebrating our current big library read, which is going on right now, which is I'm Not Dying With You Tonight by Geely Siegel and Kimberly Jones. And uh, what we did was we set up a school visit at DeKalb, uh, DeKalb, DeKalb, I think it's DeKalb Early College Academy. Uh, and I did an interview with Geely and Kim in front of about 50 of their students, and the students came prepared with a bunch of questions. And the conversation was so great that we wanted to share it with you as well. So uh, I'm going to adjust the, the volume so you can hear it, um, but some of the kids ask questions really quietly because they're pretty nervous, but uh, you can him, hear Kim and Geely's answers to those questions uh, really easily because the recording was, was taking place right next to them. Uh, so it ended up being just such a lovely conversation, and um, Kim and Geely have been on the podcast before. You can go back to previous episodes of our podcast if you are interested in... Um, in hearing them talk about the book, I interviewed them for the book's actual release. So if you want to go back to episode 362 of our podcast, um, you can hear the original conversation about the book. But this kind of extended it even further because we had a little bit more of a long-form opportunity with the kids there. And uh, they had some great questions as well. So we wanted to share this for you guys. Uh, so that's about everything I have for the introduction. If you want more information on the podcast, you can go to professionalbooknerds.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. Um, but other than that, I'm going to let you get to this special Big Library Read episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast with Geely Siegel and Kimberly Jones. Well, how are you guys doing today? Good. All right. Happy Monday. So my name is Adam Sokol. I work at Overdrive, who, if you guys use Sora, the app for your ebooks and stuff, that's that's my company. And then part of my job is I host a podcast called The Professional Book Nerds, where I get to sit down with lovely people like these two and ask them questions about the books that they've written. And so that's kind of what we're going to do today. So I know that a few of you have gotten to read Kim and Geely's book, but we're going to kind of break down how it came to exist and all sorts of stuff. I know you guys have, have some questions too. So I'll ask a few questions and then we'll kind of see what you guys want to ask and we'll just have some fun with it. So I love these buttons. I know. Did you, did you, awesome. Do you see what they say? Yeah, they, they posted it the other day and I cried a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I'm going to just kind of ask you guys. We'll sort of yeah. like start at the beginning. So Kim, Geely, how did you guys come to sit down and actually write a book together? This is like one of my favorite stories. <laughs> Well, it started with Little Shop of Stories. Yes, which is selling y'all's books over there, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
Little Shop of Stories used, used, still runs this book club called the Not So YA Book Club, which is adults who like to read teen novels or YA novels. Um, and that was us. Face it, teen novels are just better. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I know you feel me. Uh, so Kim and I, I was in this book club, and Kim was actually the leader of this book club, book club, and we got to know each other a little bit through the book club, and a bunch of people in that book club also are writers that were aspiring to be published. So like every six months, this book club would organize a writing retreat in the North Georgia mountains, and we'd all pool our money and rent a cabin and go spend like two days just writing. And we both went on one of these retreats and we discovered all this stuff that we have in common with each other, despite the fact that I grew up in suburban Florida and she grew up in the south side of Chicago. Um, and we kind of became friendly-ish. Uh, and then the idea for this book, like not so friendly that I had her phone number, right? Um, but the idea for this book came about in 2015 after the murder of Freddie Gray in Baltimore. And I know your teachers have prepped you guys for this. First of all, you guys are by far the, the best prepared school we have visited. To. All the gold stars go to you guys. So <laughs> I'm super impressed. Yeah. Um, are those questions in your head? They are. Mm -hmm. I've never seen anything like this. This is awesome. And I, we can't even count the schools that we've been yeah, to at this point. This is amazing. Yeah. Um, so in 2015, after the murder of Freddie Gray, um, protests broke out in the city. And one of the days of protests was called to start in and around a high school. And the authorities got wind of the fact that there was going to be a protest, and they made two really stupid choices. The first thing they did was close down schools early and tell the students to go home. And the second thing they did was close down public transportation in the area and barricade a bunch of streets. So what happened was, effectively, the students were trapped. And there's this teeny tiny little news story about a school bus that gets trapped behind a police barricade. And then the news moved on because it wanted to focus on the violence and not what was really happening in the community. Um, but Kim and I are both moms of kids just a little bit younger than you guys, and we got stuck on the school bus. And we were like, wait, wait, wait. What happened to the kids? How'd they get home? Did they get home? If they got home, it still probably has to have been a pretty traumatic and transformative day for them. Um, and so I had originally had the idea for the book, but I knew that the story of, of two girls, one of whom is African-American and one of whom is white in, the, in a race riot is not my story to tell by myself. I could never do that justice. And so I decided I was gonna approach my friend-ish, Kim, <laughs> at the bookstore and see if she wanted to write with me. Yeah, so I was just like, yeah. It was like real easy for me. Gilly was gonna come and like lawyer me, right? Cause she's a lawyer by trade, that's her day job. <laughs> so she had like her bullets, she was like prepared like you guys. She had like her bullets to list on all the reasons why it made sense for us to write this book together. And she, we were at, I was at Little Shop, I was on shift and she, uh, Waited till I had like a little break, and then she st she started lawyering me about why we needed to like write this book, and I was just like, I like stopped her before she could get too far into it, and was like, you had me and let's write a book together, um, and that was four years ago now, mm -hmm. so this is a long process. That was that was from starting writing the book until release a few months ago. It's been a four year process. But all, if you want to do something like that, if you want to prepare to like go ask a question for like a job interview or to write a book with someone, still always have those like all that <laughs> stuff prepared because most times people aren't going to be as chill as Kim just to be like, yeah, I want to do that with yeah, you. Yeah, I got real lucky. Um, okay, so you guys decide that, yes, we're going to do this thing. So how do you actually sit down and write a book together? Because uh, it's a very unique experience. I, I know you guys have had authors come in here before. Uh, and they're usually, I believe, they're by themselves. And so writing a book by yourself, it's everything comes out of your brain and you don't have to worry about bouncing stuff off of other people, which can sometimes help or can sometimes be challenging. So how do you actually sit down and write a book together? I feel like, and, and we've talked about this before. It takes a special relationship to be okay to do that. 
Um, I think you also, you have to be open to letting the process decide what works best. Um, how we started writing the book initially is very different than how we ended up writing the book, which is very different than how we wrote our second book. Mm -hmm. um, so you just have to be open to the process. When we originally started writing the book, because the book is told in... Um, in different, like the girls' voices are so very different. Mm -hmm. We each took responsibility for a character, so I predominantly took responsibility for Lena initially, and Geely took responsibility for Campbell, and in the initial draft, it was me writing a Lena chapter, and then like sending it to her, and then her um, writing a Campbell chapter, um, but we found as we were going through the process that the girls' voices are intentionally so distinctive that that wasn't really working, mm -hmm. um, and that we worked better when we actually sat side by side and wrote because the the night is their night. So the, the night, um, I don't I don't know if you guys have had a chance to read much of the book, but it takes place over four hours. Mm -hmm. So it's like the worst four hours of anybody's lives packed into one book. And so they're together. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they have a saturated amount. They're never not together mm -hmm. at any point in the book. Um, I think for maybe other than like a few the minutes in the, in the yeah. few, first chapter and a few minutes in the last chapter. Yeah. Um, so we, we needed for the voices to remain consistent and authentic, we had to start writing within each other's chapters, mm -hmm. or at least editing within each other's chapters. And so we found that we were more productive when we sat by side, sat by, set side by side. So we carved out time on Friday morning, because we both busy schedules, we both have mm -hmm. full-time jobs and kids outside of writing a book, which is why it took us two years to write the book. Um, but Friday was like our consistent, no matter what happens, we have to write. So it was like not even a question of like, oh, I'm going to call you on Thursday night to see if we're writing Friday. It's like, no, we're writing on Friday. You only make a phone call if you can't come, which shouldn't be that often. Mm -hmm. um, and so we did it We did it that way for the remainder of the book. Um, but we still would write, sit next to each other and like write. I'd be writing on Lena and yeah. she'd be writing on Campbell and then we'd be like, when you me, okay. <laughs> just adjust that real fast. Lena wouldn't say that. She was like, Campbell wouldn't understand that. And we'd make those adjustments. Now for our second book that we just turned in, we literally like, we eliminated all of that. Mm -hmm. And we just write in one draft. So we literally just sit and we both, like, I am, a, um, I learn verbally. She learns by sight. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I will talk. I'll just talk and talk and talk because I, I have to talk things out and talk things yeah. through. So I'll just like yammer on and ramble, 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 ramble. And then she'll put it down and be like, I have to see it. And then mm -hmm. after she puts it on the page, and I'm like, I have to say it out loud again. <laughs> um, it's, which is a completely different process than the first one. Mm -hmm. What yeah. was the biggest challenge for you guys writing this book, whether it's finding the time or process, like what thing that maybe you weren't expecting to be so hard for book one, and then how were you able to kind of tackle it when you were writing a second book together? Uh, time, time, I think, is the hardest thing, right? Because we both do have full-time day jobs mm -hmm. and other things in our lives, so carving out the time to work together was the hardest. I'm not sure we have conquered that for the <laughs> second book. I don't think we'll ever conquer that. <laughs> yeah. We're still working through that. Um, but also, I mean, you know, most of the time when we when we get asked that question, people's expectation is disagreement mm -hmm. would be the biggest thing. And we certainly had disagreements about what should happen in the book, about the plot, about the characters. But I think what we learned really early on is that um, – Compromise doesn't mean meeting in the middle. Mm -hmm. It means listening to the person who had more passion for her point mm -hmm. and following the passion because the book was better served yeah. for that. And so as you're kind of going along, is there something that happened that surprised you guys, whether it was a plot point that you didn't 
see what's going to happen or just away because knowing you two the little bit that I do like it's I can't even imagine you guys arguing which I mean <laughs> you spend so much time with each other you're going to argue sometimes but was there something that you were when you were working together surprised you a lot Marcus, Marcus surprised us a lot yeah uh, yeah those of you who have read y'all know who Marcus is anybody want to share who he is you don't have to um that's so okay that's good too <laughs> Marcus is Lena's cousin um and he came about in the book because we were fixing a mistake that we made in the plotting. In the original draft of the book, we had um, the girls meet an adult there, a news reporter there. Uh, and one of the pieces of research that we did for this book was we worked with both riot survivors and we worked with a SWAT unit to understand kind of what SWAT's response would really be in this situation. And as we were showing them our map and our plot, the SWAT guy was like, nah, they can't meet a grown-up right here. If they meet a grown-up who has any idea that they're walking into a riot, why would he ever let them continue on without getting them some adult help? And we were like, oh, that's a really good point. And we realized that they needed to meet somebody <clears throat> who was a little more grown up and could bring that sense of like tension is happening and maybe this isn't a good choice, but wouldn't be so much of an adult that they would like stop the plot right there. So we wrote Marcus instead, and he was so much fun to write that he wrote himself into the rest of the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he's become everybody's favorite character. <laughs> and he was really just fixing a mistake. Yeah. Um, now we we get messages from people all the time now like can I just get a Marcus book or can I get a couple more like fanfic chapters or something <laughs> that's like telling me what's what's the rest of Marcus's story and I'm like this story is about the two girls <laughs> I also love the idea of people just asking for a book like they have no concept that like you said it takes so long to write a book and they're just like just if you have a minute could you give us one <laughs> more you write book? a whole another book yeah first of all our publisher has to want that book that's yeah well, and also we'd have to put him through more trauma, right? Like yeah. books are not about the best day of somebody's life. They're about the worst, worst day of somebody's life. Yeah. And so like Marcus needs a break. Yeah. Let Marcus rest. <laughs> let Marcus for rest for a minute. Yeah. So, I mean, I can keep asking questions, but I want to let you guys ask some questions. So who wants to ask one of the ones that you have in your pocket? I see like a lot of nervous faces. All right. You have the first hand up back there. Would the night have gone differently if one or both of the characters had been men? I love that question. Completely different. I don't think it would be a book. Yeah. I don't think it would be a story if either if either of the characters had been male or male presenting. Um, the the imminent threat to the female form is omnipresent. Women always fear what can happen to the female body. Um, there's not a, a not even your teacher. There's not a woman in this room that walks to her car at night without her keys already out. Um, so. I think that that's not to say that something couldn't have happened to a boy in this story, but what I'm saying is the threat level is different. Mm -hmm. It's very different. Mm -hmm. um, and you have a different night, and it's actually part of what connects the two of them. What makes them the most similar is that the threat to them is the same because they're female. I think, uh, and this is that's one a of the- great question. Yeah, yeah that's a great that question. question. And this is one of the things, the first time I got to meet these two, we talked about this because I'm a male, and it's a lot. It's one of those things I never. I know, shocker. <laughs> Spoiler alert. I'm a boy. Um, but it was something I never thought about. Uh, was I can walk around at night, and I'm not worried about. It. And I think a lot of the boys in this room, like if you get a chance to read this book, it's something. Maybe you'll think about how your female students experience their day-to-day -day situations, where it is something that, and that you just. It's a privilege of being a man that I don't have to think, to think about that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so this book helps that. Because if someone 
this book, we always say this book is more about pers perspective than it is about race, right? So the perception if someone sees you is that you may be a, you may be a fight. Mm -hmm. That even if they decide to attack you, that it may not just go as smoothly yeah. or easily, that you you may you may have a weapon or you may be able to you may have a skill set that allows you to overtake them. People don't necessarily think that when they see women mm -hmm. or girls. I don't. I yeah. if someone were to fight me, it would not end well for me. It would be very, very bad. But they don't know that They on don't site. know that, but yeah, they'd find out pretty fast. They're, they're, yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, just take what do you want in my pocket? It's just take it. I just, You're like a turtle. You I just, just I just down. fall down. I'm just like, please, Wait. just go. Um, let me take you to the bank. I'll give you more money. Or something. Uh, do you, uh, who wants to ask another one? That was a really good question. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. What authors are you guys friends with, and how did that contribute to you guys becoming better writers? Ooh. Ooh. So that Friday morning that Kim mentioned where we carve out time to write, for a little while there, so there's this group of um, authors, young adult authors who live in Brooklyn, and they would always post on social media about their like writing dates, like all these Brooklyn writers, and I was like, I'm super jealous of that, I want that, I have a brownstone, and so I started this sort of like Friday morning writing salon, and a bunch of local YA authors would come and join us, and so some of them I understand has, have visited you guys, Nick Stone would come for a little while, she travels all the time now, so we don't see her all that as much. As much as we used to, <laughs> um, we as much now too. That's true. <laughs> um, so Nick Stone and Marie Marquardt and Rachel Stewart Allen, who's another Vicky local Schechter. author. Vicky Schechter, the picture book author Brianna McDaniel. Um, so a bunch of different authors, and in part, like they were our earliest readers. They were yeah, our beta they were our readers. beta readers. Yeah. And also part of what helped us to sell this book is that this book went out on. So so when you the process of like how your book gets sold is step one you get an agent right, and once you get an agent, then your book your agent puts you out on, on sub which is on submission so they like submit your book to all of these different publishers but the publishers are not just looking at like is this a great book although obviously that's the biggest chunk of it but they also look at like do you already have built-in relationships do you already have a built-in brand are there people um of value if you will who will support you so what part of what happened with us when our book went out on sub is that it went out on sub with a blurb from Nick already so Nick had read the rough draft of the book and given us a blurb so when we went out on submission we had this we already the blurb that um, is on the back of our book now from Nick we actually went on sub with that blurb um, and the threat of like we can get other ones because I had been a bookseller at Little Shop for almost a decade and we had been around and had all of our friends who were Friday morning partners and we were like, we have all these literary friends that we know, you know, Jason Reynolds and Angie Thomas and all these people that if you give us a book deal, they'll say it's good. <laughs> um, and we did end up getting a, a lot of blurbs from our friends. So we got a blurb from, we still have that blurb from Nick. Angie Thomas, who wrote The Hate You Give, gave us a blurb. So did David Arnold. So did Lamar Giles. Um, so yeah, it, it, it doesn't hurt to have friends who are writers. It's really good to have friends who are writers. So yeah. what about, um, do you think that there were books, because we were talking a little bit before about the books we read when we were growing up, like a million years ago, guys. Um, yeah, 1912. <laughs> but do you think that there were books from when you guys were young that sort of shaped how this book came to be? Or maybe just shaped how you write? Um, not from when they I was young. They didn't have much for yeah. us when we were young. We were talking about, yeah. yeah. When we were young, I, like I skipped from reading books for kids to reading books for grown-ups because there wasn't as much 
like as robust a canon of books for teens as there is for you guys now, which I think is awesome. Yeah. So I came back to reading books for teens when I was already an adult. I was like 30 when I started reading books for <laughs> teens again and discovered how awesome they are. So I would say it's more that the books that I've seen, like how beautiful YA literature is right now that's mm. influenced this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when we were growing up, this huge bookshelf behind us would be like, this yeah, be like, this Twain. shelf, yeah, yeah. This, and, that's <laughs> and it would be yeah. full of Mark Twain and the yeah. Catcher in the Rye, <laughs> Catch Twenty Two. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's go another one. The only thing we had was uh, Judy Blue. We had Judy Blue. Mm-hmm. That was like the only real YA author we had. Yeah. And then, and then I got Harry Potter when I was like twelve or thirteen. Yeah, we so were that, adults. That, that sort of changed <laughs> the life for me. Um, let's go another one of your guys' questions. Yeah, go. Can you please give us some insight on what made Campbell take? Ooh, what made Campbell tick? Do you wanna do you wanna get no. to you want me to? <laughs> so Campbell has recently moved to this neighborhood. She comes from Haverford, Pennsylvania, which is a predominantly white neighborhood. Um, and the first thing I would say about Campbell is at this moment in her life, she's really, really lonely. Um, her mom has moved abroad for a new job. Her dad is kind of not as involved in her life as she would want him to be. Um, I, and so she's lonely and she's she's feeling abandoned um, and she's also got a really stereotypical view of the neighborhood that she's moved into because she's influenced by her dad a lot of what Campbell says is like parroting her dad's perspective and her dad's attitudes and her dad despite living in this neighborhood for a lot of years um, isn't really a part of it and so I think Campbell's journey over the course of the night is to sort of open her eyes and look around her and see a what life is really like in this neighborhood Um, one of the things that Campbell is really enamored of is once she meets Marcus and Lena, like although Lena's kind of annoyed with Marcus because she sees him as getting in her business more than she wants, Campbell Mm -hmm. is awed by this relationship because it's a really loving and involved relationship by people who aren't even blood related and that is not something Campbell has at all. Um, And it's also not something she expected to find in this night. And so um, I think what makes her tick is a lot of times fear and stereotype in this night, but also the need to sort of open her eyes and look around her and see what really is instead of parroting a grown-up. Was there like a specific question or something that you used to shape characters? Like I have, I've got to sit down with a lot of authors and I always like to ask them how they, like what is a defining trait? So like um, there's this author named Jojo Moyes who writes these adult books that people love. And she has this thing called the kick the dog test, which is she, looks at each of her characters and says, what would I do, what would this character do if I saw someone else kick a dog? And so that way she kind of shapes their personality and their emotions and things like that. Like, is there, was there a way when you were sitting down with each of your characters, because there's a lot of characters that, uh, that kind of come and go really quickly, like, was there something that you used to say, like, here's how we define this person? Not a specific thing, although I'm going to use that mm-hmm. in the future. It's the dog test, really yeah. good. We, we always collect writing tips. Yeah. I kind of like that kick the dog. Yeah, <laughs> that's really great. Yeah. Um, defining characteristics. No, I think we spent a lot of time in this book asking, as, as things would transpire, mm-hmm. why would this person do it? And for us, there's always got to be a why, right? Yeah. It, it, they, don't, they shouldn't just be randomly acting. It should mm-hmm. be consistent with what they've experienced so far or what they're experiencing in the moment. I often pull from people who, like, remnants of people who are actually in my life. Mm-hmm. So you'll find that even, like, with the characters, if you go through, like, the characters' name list, a lot of the, my characters are named after people I actually know. They're, like, an homage to somebody I actually know. Um, the, the big 
answer to that for for Lena is the button that they're wearing. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that you know I grew up on the south side of Chicago in a neighborhood called the Wild Hundreds that unfortunately gets a lot of rough press because mm-hmm. um, it's a rough neighborhood. Um, and so, but I but I'm all right. You know what I mean? And 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 a, and a lot of people that I know. All right, I'm actually working on a book about another girl who grew up in my neighborhood, and it's her true story um, about how she became the first black female firefighter in Chicago. And there's lots of stories like that. I mean, Kanye is from my neighborhood. There's lots of people that I grew up with who are wildly successful. Freddie Rodriguez, who's the star of that show, Bull. Like, yeah, like uh, we all grew up in the same neighborhood, you mm-hmm. know. And, and I, could, I mean, I could really go on and on and on and on about people who came from my neighborhood who are who are successful both in the public sector and in and in private sectors. And so, um, I when I worked at Little Shop of Stories, we had this amazing program um, called Project Bookshelf. And Project Bookshelf, a lot of the kids who lived in the housing authority, housing authority in, De- in incorporated city of Decatur, could come in through the Decatur Education Foundation, could come in. Do you, do you guys still do Project Bookshelf? No. So. No, I'm listening. <laughs> um, and what would happen is before any break, so before spring break, Christmas break, fall break, before any school break, they could come in, and all of these students would get a $40 spending limit, and they would come in before the store could open, and they could shop, so they would have books for the break. And I would give them these amazing books, like, you know, The Akata Witch and The Hate You Give and all this stuff, and they wouldn't read them. And they would come back the next break, and I would be like, I've got a list of another set of amazing books for you. And they wouldn't read them. Mm-hmm. And so finally I asked them, like, what is it that you, you tell me a book that you want to read, and I'll order it. And so they all came back, and they were like, Miss Kim, we found a book that we want to read, and we need you to order it for it. And I was like, great. And they were like, I was like, what is it? And they were like, Thug Lovin'. And I was like, no, ma'am. <laughs> you not be getting Thug Lovin'. I'm not ordering black erotica for middle schoolers. <laughs> um, but, but what, rights. Girl, I was like, no, ma'am, you're not be getting that. So, um, but what I realized that what they were asking me for was they wanted a book in their own voice. Mm-hmm. And so they had looked at, like, you know, on Amazon, you can see, like, some of the pages of the book or whatever. They had looked, and it was written in what people refer to as AAVE, which is African-American vernacular, right? So um, they, they were wanting something in their own voice. So I, I found something age-appropriate for them. Um, I found this book called Cookie by Tamika Newhouse, and I ordered it for them, and they read it. And I started getting emails from their media um, specialists and from their teachers saying how they were forming their own little book clubs around this book, Cookie. And I had ordered like five copies, and there was like 15 of them, and they were passing it around to each other. And so I got Tamika, the author, to come in the next time they came in, and she did like a book club with them. Mm -hmm. And like it blew their mind, and they were like so excited and so happy. And so for Lena, it was very important to me to add something else in the canon for those kids. And, you know, I just wanted people to understand that, you know, the way we, I mean, we all code switch. I mean, I can sit here and speak very well, but this is not how I speak when I'm at home. Mm -hmm. This is not how I speak when I'm in my community. This is not how I speak when I go back to the wild hundreds. Um, But I wanted them to understand that the way we speak when we talk to each other in our own spaces is cultural, not remedial. Mm -hmm. It's not a reflection of our intellect. 
Um, it's just a, it's just cultural markers on how we speak to each other. It's right. our own language. And so these kids were looking for that, and a lot of authors, and a lot of authors are still afraid to write in AAVE because they're afraid of the criticism. They're, I've received a lot of criticism for the way that Lena speaks, mm. but I don't really care because I'm not writing for the critics. Mm. I'm writing for these kids. Um, and, and, the, and again, the way in which we speak when we talk to each other is cultural. Yeah. It's not remedial. And I wanted kids to know, like, I'm a hood chick. I grew up in the hood. And that hood girls could be heroes, too. And I also wanted people to understand that we have spent a lifetime interpreting how everybody else speaks. Nobody has spent a second trying to interpret how we speak as if though it doesn't have value. And I have a problem with that. So I'm, I'm okay with the critics giving me a heart. Me and Geely had a conversation about that very on, and we're like, we're good with it because I'm not writing for you. I'm not writing for y'all grown people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Y'all messed up. Ain't no fixing y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I love I'm, you, I'm Kim. writing for the next generation. Oh, you're the best. <laughs> uh, all right, let's get a few more of your guys' questions. These are awesome. Yeah. Uh, um, so during the riots, when Marcus and Black meet up with Lena and Campbell, how did you decide that they would go with Black? And would it have turned out differently if they had gone with Marcus? I'm going to let her ask this because she's so obsessed with Black. And I, black. <laughs> I also really love Black. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I don't want to date Black, and I don't want my children to date Black. But he's a really fun character to write. Um, yeah, so so there. for those of you who haven't read it, there's a moment. There's The riot is happening. It's really chaotic. There's a lot of violence. The girls have met up with Lena's boyfriend, Black, and they've gotten separated from her cousin, Marcus. Um, and he, he catches back up to them, and Black and Marcus don't get along at all. Like, Mar- Marcus thinks Black is a bum. Um, and, and Black... Marcus is right. <laughs> He's kind of right. Um, so, so Black and Marcus have a fight, and there's a bit of a moment of, like, are Lena and Campbell going to go on with Marcus, or are they going to go on with Black? Um, I don't think that Lena would have ever made a different choice, right? Lena has a very different perspective on Black than any of the other characters do in the book, and her goal for the night, in large part, up until then, has been to reach Black. So I don't think anything would have persuaded Lena to go with Black. I think Campbell would have preferred to go with Marcus because she views him as safety. And and Campbell also sees through some of Black's BS um, in a way that Lena isn't capable of. So I think Campbell, A, has a little bit clearer picture of Black, um, but... Uh, Campbell and Lena have forged a bond by that point in time, and I don't think Campbell would have chosen to leave Lena. So um, do I think the night would have gone differently? Something pretty bad happens to Marcus immediately after that, so honestly, I think the night might have gone worse if they had chosen Marcus. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, that's a really good question. I'm not 100% sure, but I, I don't have a good feeling about what would have happened if they'd gone with Marcus, even though he seems like the safer choice. Yeah. Let's get some more. Yeah, good. So at the end of the book, um, it's not clear to the reader if Lena's going to stay with Black. So like, I, when you were writing this, did you like answer the question and drop sense throughout the story, or do you truly just left it amb- ambiguous? I think I know in my heart whether or not she stays with him, but I choose not to like share that with people, because I like to let people choose for themselves. Um, there are some clues in there, I think, that will tell you what her decision is, is going to be. Um, but I like to leave it up to the reader to decide if they think. Because what, what I think happens is, if you look at the arc of Lena, her growth, I think the answer is 
is there. But I but but the thing about it is is like that's the beauty of of leaving kind of an open-ended story, which we did intentionally, because we've even, we we spoke at Mercer University like a month or so or something like that ago, and the girls there, you know, they're college age, they educated us about some things we didn't see. And we were like, we were talking to one of them online last night, we're like, oh, wow. We're like, we didn't even, wow, we didn't even really think about it that way, that's interesting. Um, So it's always nice for me to hear the things that the readers discover from their own perspective Mm -hmm. of how they're reading it and seeing it. And so I don't, I think that's sometimes why I don't like when like books come out and then there's like fan art from the publisher that comes with it because I'm like, in general, I just like to leave it to the reader to see the characters, how they want to see them both physically, emotionally, Mm -hmm. everywhere because I think that's how you find yourself in a book is putting your own view on it. So I, I, I won't say whether or not she stays, but I, but I did, when I wrote it, I did know in my heart like whether or not she stayed. Do you have an opinion about whether she? She left. She left. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Like, She's like, oh no. <laughs> no but, done. I do think like the best books spark conversations like this. Like not just the content of the book, which obviously is is designed to create yeah. conversations, but I like when the, I, I hate when a book ends and I'm like, Ah, we tied a bow on it. We're good. I don't have to think about that book. Like, I want to be mad at the end of a book that there aren't more pages, yeah. that I can't find more story, which and is what is I was. And life is messy, right? Life doesn't tie itself up in a little bow. Like, I, I got friends who've been divorced for 10 years, and there's still a battle going on. <laughs> and so, you know, that was part of what we wanted to say, is that not that we're going to get these, like, neat little answers that are going to mm-hmm. tie this story up so neatly. It's just... It, it needs to be an ongoing conversation, so it needs to be left open to continue to be that conversation. Mm-hmm. Let's get a few. I think we only got a few, time for a few more. Of your guys, this thing. Yeah, go ahead. Hi. What do you hope for you to take away from your book? That's usually my last question. <laughs> <laughs> She's gonna take your job. I know. I was, I was giving you the phone. You're good to go. Do you want to go first? Uh, what I what do I hope readers take away from the book? Um to think before they speak. Mm-hmm. That's really that, that like thoughtful speech, don't be first, be thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, really like that. I will say, because I actually asked them this a few months ago and I remember what you guys, you told me kind of that you hoped people saw an experience from a different perspective, which mm-hmm. is what I have done with the book. And yeah, I, I don't know, I feel like it, creates conversations where we can all sit in a room and like have a fun but serious conversation about stuff that's going on so yeah yeah it's yeah. a good question Geely always calls it a tool she says she hopes people use it as a tool yeah yeah like I hope it's sometimes it's easier to have hard conversations when you're talking about a fictional character and something a fictional character did and then maybe from there <clears throat> and specifically I hope that people in the white community who read this book back into seeing things about themselves and their own community through Campbell that they wouldn't have been able to confront otherwise. Good, yeah. Um, what did you edit out of your book? Ooh, that's a really good question. The, the first draft got chunked completely. Yeah. About 30,000 words got yeah. just thrown out. Yeah. Um, yeah, the first, the very first draft of this book, like Kim said, we think this book is as much about perspective as it is about anything else. And we were like, you know what would be an awesome way to show perspective? You're going to see every chapter twice. So you're going to see this that event. Was <laughs> <laughs> it was bad. It, legit. So we wrote 
like a quarter of the book that way and we sent it out to some of those early readers we mentioned before and every single one of them came back and they were like this sucks. yeah David Arnold was like what is what is this <laughs> um, it was repetitive it was boring and repetitive <laughs> and we were like okay we see that and so we actually then had to like go back and and do the um, structure that we have now, which is they it leapfrogs and they continue each other's chapters. What else did we cut? Did we cut anything else major? Uh, we didn't cut a ton of stuff. Early, very early on, we had epilogues. We like wrote what's happening for the girls like by the end of that year around graduation. And um, they were bad though. They were bad, and I think a part, it, it was what Kim was just saying before, which is like we were trying to tie things up too neatly with a bow in a story that doesn't lend itself to like this you know, perfect, picture-perfect, happy ending. And so um, we cut the epilogues. We, you're, uh, if, you, if you aspire to be a, a, a writer, don't aspire to be a great writer. That's going to be the death of you. It is. Don't aspire to be a great writer. Aspire to be a great editor. And there's a big difference because you cannot edit a blank page. And so if you have this perception that everything that you're going to get down on the page has to be perfect and right, that's... A lot of times what when people are talking to me about that they're having writer's block, that's what I'm actually hearing, is that what I have on the page I don't enjoy, or I'm trying to get things on the page and it's not working. And it's like, no, what you're trying to do is be a great writer. What you're trying to do is get the first piece of copy that you put down on the page so perfectly right that when it's not, then you get stalled by it. And it's like, that's silly. Throw a bunch of crap down on the page and then go fix it. Um, because again, you cannot fix a blank page but you can fix 30 pages of junk. Um, so if you aspire to be a writer, don't try to be a good one. They don't exist. This book went through 21 drafts, 21 drafts before it got to what you, you're doing. So if you think the book is good, you're not reading a book that was written by two magnificent writers. You're reading a book that was written by two magnificent editors. And there's a big difference. And I had a question back there, yeah, go ahead. Obviously, like this was a traumatic experience for everyone involved. But what was, did Campbell's views on the police like change throughout the course of the story? That's an excellent question, <clears throat> and I think the answer is they begin to, right at the beginning of the like one of my favorite. Um, moments in the book is early on when the girls decide they need to get out of the school because things have gotten too hot at the school and they walk out and they encounter a wall full of police vehicles. Uh, oh, sorry, when, when the police first arrive at the fight and Campbell's reaction is help has arrived, right? She's like, oh, um, I'm relieved. Help has arrived. And Lena's reaction is, oh no, trouble is now starting. <clears throat> and that's, I think, because the black community and the white community are policed differently in many situations, particularly middle class and upper middle class white communities. And to the white community, it's their authority figures who can present help. And oftentimes to black communities, they're authoritarian figures who present, I'm telling you this, like you guys don't know this. Um, but that's a lesson that I, like as a white person, didn't grow up I didn't have that information. I didn't know that. I had a very different view on the police, much as Campbell does at the beginning of the book. But at the end of the book, and I'm going to spoil some stuff for y'all. I'm sorry. <laughs> but at the end of the book, when Campbell's father goes to call the police, Campbell stops him. And I think it's, it is the start of her recognizing. She doesn't know what's going to happen, and she couldn't articulate that it's because it's more dangerous because she hasn't developed that far in her thinking. But I think the instinct that she has has shifted to say, I'm not sure help is coming in this moment if we call the police. I'm worried. Um, so I think she starts to change, but it would be... Um, 
it would be dishonest to say that now she's woke, <laughs> um, and she, you know she's going to go out and and advocate for change. I think I hope that she'll get there, but I'm not sure she's quite there yet. I want to give you guys some time to like have the book signed and stuff. I know we kind of have like a hard stop at ten, but I just want to say like, think. Oh, we can keep talking? Okay, the boss said we're good, then we're going to keep talking. Let's keep getting you guys' questions, Yeah, Yeah. What books are you guys currently reading? Oh, what books are we currently reading? So right now I am, because I also run the Atlanta chapter of the um, Well-Read Black Girl Book Club, and so we actually are meeting this Saturday, and you guys are all welcome to come. Um, we meet at Little Shop of Stories. Um, we're meeting this Saturday at 7 o'clock. And so I'm reading the book for Book Club, which is a classic, um, The Coldest Winter Ever by Sister Soldier. So that is what I'm reading right now. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I just finished reading a book, uh, Ruta Sepetti's book, The Fountains of Silence. She writes historical YA fiction. Um, it's about the, Frank, the rule of Franco in like the 50s and 60s in oh. Spain. And it was really good. I'll just throw one out there, too. The yeah. yes. question wasn't for me. Yes, it was. Um, I just finished a book that actually comes out in, like, two months called Sunnyside Plaza, and it's about, it's about this guy named Scott Simon who does, like, radio and all sorts of stuff. But the book is very unique in that it's, you know, talking about seeing things from different people's perspectives. Sunnyside Plaza is about a, uh, a home for people who have mental disabilities. Uh, and so you read the entire book, through the eyes of one of these adults with a mental with a disability who sees the world a little bit differently than everyone else and there's things that are going on there where people keep getting sick or dying and the police come and they talk to other people there and basically what happens is this one particular character she is able to because while she may not speak like any of us or see the world the way that we do, she sees things that none of us would pay attention to. And so she's actually able to help the police figure out what's going on. And it's just, it's a really good way to see the world through someone completely different eyes. And you get little bits of experience where she'll be out and about with the people and there'll be people who don't understand who she is. So they're mean to her. And then you'll see other people kind of stand up for it because it's a middle grade book and you get that like positivity. But yeah, it's called Sunnyside Plaza. It's really, really Sounds good. Great. Yeah. yeah. You guys got a few more questions we want to ask? Yeah, go ahead. It is said the heart of racial or ethnic prejudice stems from things like ignorance or fear. But what false views Delina and Campbell have of each other and how do those views evolve or change over the course of the book? I think one of the biggest things with Lena is, and this is probably, I'm sure you guys can relate to this, a lot of what um, Lena's view about Campbell is not really rooted in her experience with somebody about Campbell, more so the experience she's been taught. So I intentionally made Lena's parent her grandfather. So her grandfather is in his 70s. And this is set in Atlanta. So you're talking about a man who would have survived Jim Crow South. A man who would remember lynchings and black and segregated schools and separate water fountains and all of that. So he would have given Lena a very clear perspective that you don't trust white people. That white people cannot be trusted. So Lena's initial reaction to Campbell is very transactional. It's not 
she she doesn't see any value in being with Campbell over the course of the night. All she knows is what she needs from Campbell. Campbell has a functioning phone, and she doesn't. She really she doesn't really need Campbell. She needs the phone. That's Lena's perspective. I don't need you. I need this phone. You are not a full human to me because her grandfather would have taught her that, which is why, and I hope this isn't spoiling too much, I don't think, which is why she doesn't even call Campbell by her name until she feels like Campbell is worthy of being called by a name because she doesn't see the value in her just yet. But that perspective is exterior to her. It doesn't come from her. It comes from what her grandfather would have taught her and I hope that that's what happened with both girls over the course of the night is that they kind of relinquish some of the things that they've been taught by the world and have a night so extreme that they have to form their own opinions. And if I could just give you guys like a little piece of lighthearted advice that you'll learn from the book as as you go through high school and college, if you're going to go out and about at night, have a fully charged phone so you can call people if you need help, although yeah. that probably would have ended the book in a very early <laughs> yes, part of the story. Yes, there would have been story. no book. Yeah. <laughs> also, wear comfortable shoes. Comfortable shoes and charge your phone. That's like a big takeaway. I, I saw a few more hands at the back somewhere. Uh, yeah, right there? Yeah. Okay, so when Nina and Campbell, uh, hunker down in the concession stand together, Campbell thinks the concession stand feels less like a fortress and more like a cage. What is the difference and what does she mean? That's a fabulous question. And these kids are smart. I know. I know. You guys are blowing me away. Um, does anybody want to take a guess at that themselves that's read the book? Again, you don't. You all don't have to. Um, so I think... Campbell is a fish out of water, right? She's new to this city. She doesn't really know anyone. She doesn't have any friends. Her teacher basically volunteered her to um, serve concessions that night. And um, at the beginning of that moment, when the fight is happening, like the fight is outside the concession stand, Campbell feels pretty protected within those walls. She's like, this is a fortress. I can't be hurt in here. And Campbell's expectation, because this is how she's experienced her life to this point, is that external help will come in the form of a grown-up or the police or somebody, right? Like, she's like, if I just wait in this fortress long enough, help will arrive. I don't have to take care of this problem. Um, and in fact, she's like looking around for help. And meanwhile, Lena's like, get down. Tr- you, 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 trouble is coming. You're, you're misassessing this situation. Um, but then it, it transforms for her when she realizes help is not coming. And that's like a sort of a pivotal moment for Campbell because it is the start of her realizing that she's going to have to take care of herself this night in a way that she really hasn't had to to this point in her life. Um, she, unlike Lena who needs the phone, like Campbell really needs Lena. Campbell would not survive this night alive by herself. Um, she might have gotten herself shot right in that concession stand by when she didn't dug down. Um, so I, But I also think she feels like not only is help not coming, but I'm trapped. I can't just go on my own. I don't have the tools to survive this. I need help and I don't have it. And then all of a sudden that concession stand, which she thought was her protection, is her cage and she can't leave it because she doesn't know what's coming next. I think I saw another hand way back there. Yeah. Describe the relationship Campbell has with her father and how it influences her attitude. Campbell has a rough relationship with her father. He hasn't been in her life, her entire life. So her parents get divorced when she's very young and her mom moves back up north. 
and Campbell doesn't he's a he's kind of an absentee dad he makes some interesting choices in the book like he's going away to his fishing cabin most weekends and leaving Campbell to fend for herself um, and the other thing about Campbell is although she is she has racial privilege in the book she socioeconomically does not have privilege right her family is pretty poor her dad's hardware store is on the verge of bankruptcy basically um, and so for this weekend that he's left her alone to fend for herself she has five dollars in her pocket and she comments at the beginning of the book like I couldn't even buy myself all four things that this concession stand has to sell tonight um, so I think her relationship with her dad is distant and absent and, and pretty bad um, and it influences so here's another thing that like um, I have an almost teenager myself I spend some time around teenagers sometimes when you're a teenager you overestimate the kind of trouble you're going to get in from a grown-up in your life and underestimate what external danger really is. And so Campbell is overestimating trouble from her dad and underestimating the situation that she's found herself in because she doesn't have a close relationship with him. Any more of those? Okay. Yeah, right here. What comes first, the plot or the characters? Please. <laughs> <laughs> um... I think it depends on the story. I really think it, uh, in this particular story, I think the plot came first. Mm. I think in our new story, the story we just turned in, I think the characters kind of mm. developed themselves first. Yeah. Um, so it just depends. This, the, I'm not down with you tonight. It's kind of a, a little bit of a, like a ripped from the headlines uh, kind of story because it was based on this news clip that we saw. So the plot was already kind of in place a little bit mm -hmm. for us and then we had to decide who we were going to build out, who we were going to pull out of that story to build the story out. Um, we always thought we were going to get compared to American Boys when the book came out, mm -hmm. and we never do. <laughs> we always get compared to The Hate You Give. Mm -hmm. And so what we say is if you took that segment of The Hate You Give where the riot takes place and you ripped two kids from that piece, then you get I'm Not Dying With You Tonight. Um, and so the plot was already in place. But I think, what, are, you, are you a writer? Kinda. Kinda. Okay. okay. So I I would say one of the things that'll help you on both sides, whether you have a plot driven story or a character driven story, is there needs to be like pages and pages and pages of information that you know about both the plot and the character that never even make it into the book. That but that are subconsciously influencing the journey that you take mm -hmm. them on. Um, there's nothing in the book that talks about like what I said about Pop's life experience. But that was in the back of my mind the entire time because so that I kind of put that in Lena's mouth unconsciously um, when she interacted with people. Um, we, there are two types of writers in the world. There's plotters and pantsers. So pantsers, are, they write by the seat of their pants. They can sit down at their laptop or back in my day at their word processor um, <laughs> and, and just write and just go and flow. And then there are plotters. We're plotters. So and we almost overplot for contemporary writers. We kind of plot more similar to like fan fantasy writers um and that as you know every beat that's going to happen before it happens and what it means and what how this person intersects with that other person and you do what's called a plot and character bible and study so that you know everything about everything you can know about everybody before it even happens and that's how we write we plot it out in great detail and then we just have to kind of like fill in the gaps as we're writing we also need that because we're co-authors and so we need to know where the other person is going um and we need to have a clear line on what's happening next um 
But I think that you need to really understand both your plot and your character before you start writing. And I think one of the things to remember, if you want to, as you kind of go through life, if you want to be a writer, a thing is to just be aware of stuff that's around you. I've, I had a, a writer tell me that he always keeps a small little notebook with him. Most of us have phones now with the little notepad app in there. But if whether it's something that happens that you see or experience or it's a person like maybe you have like a crazy cousin that's just like I have to talk right about this guy <laughs> I you, no matter what it is like if you kind of make notes for yourself I do this all the time on my phone there's a lot of crazy notes on my phone about like stuff that's going on people probably think I'm a crazy person if they saw it but it's all because I know I want to remember it for later so if you're just sitting there while you're in class and like maybe a teacher says something that's interesting or again you meet a person who you're just like this is an interesting like you can collect that sort of information and then turn it into a story that's your own whether it starts with an action that happens or with a person that you just kind of want to tell in your mind what you think their story would be because your character is not always actually a person either because like the this book has been through several titles <laughs> and one the original the original 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 title was the neighborhood because the neighborhood is a character in and of itself <laughs> um and so one of the things that we did which actually thank god we did it because we ended up <laughs> needing it was we actually walked the girls walk so we this is this is loosely based on zone six here on the east side of atlanta the story so we parked our cars at crim high school and we walked down to east atlanta village and that's the journey that the kids take the girls take and we made a map of it and so we paid attention to everything that we saw along the way like where were where were the gas stations where's the highway um what kind of people were on the street like how big a space on some of the blocks were the houses could you see someone coming out of the houses were any of the houses boarded up were they abandoned um once we got down to the commercial district how close were the stores so how long would it take them to get from the hardware store to the the big box store that they were trying to get to mm -hmm. and thank god we did that because i predominantly talked to riot survivors. I talked to riot survivors from Ferguson, from the LA riots, from the Philadelphia riots in the 60s, but Geely went to go talk to the SWAT team, and the first thing the captain of the SWAT team said is, where's your map? Because I need to see if where you're saying this takes place lends itself to a riot. Mm -hmm. We're like, we have, we have a map! map. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is a few more hands. Yeah. Um, I know you guys said that you worked through like a lot of different titles. Okay. And what is the significance of the title that you, you know, you made your final decision on? We didn't make the decision. <laughs> our, edit our, our editor, editor picked it. Um, <laughs> it's a line from the book. It's a line that Lena says from the book. Yeah, because after the neighborhood, then the book was called Mass Disturbance. Because when Geely talked to that SWAT team, they never used the term riot. They referred to a riot as a mass disturbance. Mm -hmm. So that was the title. But our, it, it was not testing well with people. And they were like, the publishing house was like, mass disturbance is not working. And, and they were right. I can, I'm not dying with you tonight. It's a much better title. You'll also learn if you have an interest in writing and telling stories for a living. Uh, a lot of the stuff the authors do, like, they get to control the story, but there's so many people that have to do, like, the title or, like, the cover of the book, and there's a lot of stuff that you, I ask authors all the time, like, wow, this jacket is amazing. What did, how involved were you with the cover? They're like, no, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. So you'll find that out. <laughs> yeah, we actually, we went to, um, our publisher is in Naperville, Illinois, and we were in Naperville for the Anderson's YA conference a couple weeks ago, and we went to our publishing office and we signed for the office and th there was a line of uh, probably 
as many people as sitting in this room or more and they all stood in line and they each came up to us as we signed for them to tell us what they did on our book yeah and like what what their part was in our book and like we were just like now what do you do and they're like I'm the person that did this thing for you and we're like thank you and they're like so I was in charge of this and we're like thank you I'm like how many thank yous have we said today we have to write 60 note cards now when we get back but yeah it was like it was that many people who in some way participated in the entire mm-hmm. process of the book that's not so like scare you to try to write a story because if you have a great story to tell and you're passionate about it those you'll find those people like you'll they'll if you have a great story to tell you can get it out there and then the yeah those 60 people will that 60 people was nice that made us feel fancy we're like wow it took this many people to do this little do that for us that's kind of cool keep going or i don't want to overstay our welcome i want to make sure we're okay (laughs) i'm guessing you guys have classes eventually Okay, cool. All right, I think I saw one. Yeah. Okay. So one thing Nick Stone does in her books is she has like a thesis. So one sentence from the book that tells exactly what her point is. Do you have a thesis in your book? Yeah, it's that line. That your favorite line. The po- about the police. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the it's the, it's actually three lines when the police show up at the fight and Campbell says help has arrived and Lena says oh shit now trouble's starting sorry Um, (laughs) I apologize um yeah it's because that to us those three lines encapsulate the wildly different perspectives that the girls have on what has been happening and what's going to happen I'm gonna borrow that for future interviews with authors that's awesome (laughs) Um, it was your thesis that's great (laughs) so I want to say how movie ready is your book like if it was made into a movie how would it transfer over? That's a great question. Um, my background is in TV and film. Um, actually, that's what I do now for a living as I'm an episodic director, so I direct TV shows. Um, so the, the pacing was set for, for film. Um, it's paced like a movie intentionally. Um, so we always say that that's part of what we did as writers, even though the, the characters have different perspectives. Geely and I have wildly different writing styles. Um, but we just brought the best of each of our writing styles together. Geely is a masterful like novelist. Like she knows how you're supposed to like have the interiority on the page and what things are supposed to look like and how to set a mood for people to know exactly what they're seeing, hearing, like what things are looking like. And and my specialty is dialogue because I'm normally writing a screenplay. Um, so sometimes I would send her like pages, like here are my pages, and she's like, "This is a script, my friend. This is not a book. Um, <laughs> where are they? What are they seeing?" I'm like, "What do you mean? The camera's gonna? Oh, there's no camera." Um, yeah, so we paste it ready for to be ready to go directly into the film. I just imagine you setting her pages like exterior, school, nighttime. <laughs> right. Is there a, one or two more? Yeah. Like. <clears throat> Nowadays, every third book is like something about like racial things and how it influences the community. So, how much like how what was your like perspective going into it, thinking that your book might influence a lot of kids in our generation? Because I think this generation is like keenly aware of what's happening around them in a very different way than than generations before. Like you guys kind of remind me of like the 60s kids a little bit and that like you're conscious of what's happening to you and I think that we really insult kids by thinking that you guys aren't experiencing these things with us as they're happening um this idea that all of this stuff is happening in the world and that you guys are unaffected by it is ridiculous 
it's silly and you guys are having to navigate it and you're having to navigate the conversations and you're having to deal with it and like gun control and race relations and all of that stuff is directly affecting you every day and nobody's giving nobody's paying attention to your voice as much as they should. So I think a lot of people in our community, the YA writing community are saying, cause sometimes, you know, people, a lot of times people insult us, right? They're like, why are you writing teen novels instead of real books? I'm like, first of all, it's a real book. <laughs> And, and and second of all, the most interesting conversations in the world in terms of literature right now are happening in, happening in YA novels because the, the raw truth of it is is that the true conversations are coming from y'all because you guys haven't been jaded by the world yet. You haven't learned how to put on face. You guys don't have a job to worry about if I post this thing or say this thing. Is my principal gonna see it and I'm gonna get fired? Um, am I gonna get retired from Home Depot if I say this thing? You guys just speak in your most raw, true version. Like as a filmmaker, one of the things that I've always loved, I always love Good Times, right? I love that show. It was way before y'all time. I don't know if y'all seen the reruns or something. But uh, you have. So the thing that I loved about Good Times is that it was happening during the 70s at the height of like the Black Panther movement and things like that. And they put all of the, the radical dialogue in the mouth of Michael, the child. Because they knew that, it, first of all, they knew if they put it in James' mouth, they'd be off the air within seconds, <laughs> right? And then secondly, because they knew that adults wouldn't speak in the raw truth in which Michael spoke. Mm -hmm. And so I, that's a lot of what we're trying to do in YA is saying if you want to get to the truth of the matter, you have to talk to the kids. Because that's who's going to, y'all are brutal. <laughs> in your terms of honesty um, and we need more of that and so all movements really have been rooted in the young every great movement has been rooted I'm 43 years old I'm tired I'm not about to march in these streets with y'all <laughs> but I want to support you as you're doing it and I want to give you the tools that you need in order to do it and I think that's what's trying to I think that's what YA authors are trying to do right now is say we are going to present these tools to give voice to the people we need to be listening to, which are y'all. Yes. I think the, also for me, um, when I think about the, the white community and people in the white community who, who want to be allies, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking we've arrived at a moment in time where it's fixed, it's done, I know all I need to know, I'm woke, I, and all this stuff. But it's not, like understanding someone else's lived experiences and culture is a journey that we need to be on continuously. It's not like you arrive at understanding and there you are. I've made it to Wokeville. I've made it to Wokeville and I have nothing left to do. But I do, like, I do know white people who are like that, <laughs> right? Um, and that's a mistake, right? Like, this is a constant journey of learning and understanding. And so to me, like, when we talk about representation in book, it's as important for a community to see its own lived experience represented on the page, but it's also a tool to build empathy and understanding in other communities, right? So it's sort of like, don't make, to me, it's a don't make the mistake of assuming that you know everything that there is to know and that you understand all the experiences. Open yourself up to additional and different types of experiences through the book. Yeah, and when we started writing this book, like right around the time we were like finally getting to a draft that we really loved American Boys the arcs for American Boys started coming out so I like 
text Jason this mean message like, I hate you. You have this boy version of me and Geely's book. You already have enough books, Jason Reynolds. You like, you stole our book. And Jason was like, first of all, calm down, crazy. And second of all, he was like, we need all of the books and all of the voices. And this, this is not going to be finished with me and Brendan's voice. So we need mm-hmm. you and Geely's voice and we need your your perspective on the same subject because the canon, and I got this from him from that message he sent me back, he said, the canon has been limited for centuries. So the expansion of the can- canon has to keep going. We have to keep exalting different voices and different phrases and different styles. And so he's like, so finish your book and leave me alone. And I was like, hey. <laughs> well, thank you guys for hanging out with us today. This was so much this fun. This was like, great. You guys' you questions guys are, are awesome. You guys, this has been really awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. always says, hope is about the future. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Rakuten Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast.